And I used that theme for like six months and I never once looked at it and was like, hmm, I'm bored of this theme. But now I'm like using material theme and I'm like, change it. <laughs> Get it out of here. Get it out of here. That makes no sense. How is that possible? I don't know. I'm They're old school. Well, they are kind of old school because some of their higher end headphones also still only come in hardwired on both ends or hardwired into the ear cup, which is kind of an old school way of doing things. Should I just get a pair of like Audi's LC2s and bring them to work? And yeah, what the like the two thousand dollar ones? No, they're eight hundred. Don't they? Doesn't Audi's make a two thousand dollar pair of headphones? Oh yeah, yeah. You should just bring those. Just bring your planners. It's whatever. Planners no, and these, tubes, I've in. actually heard these. The LC2s are like the better version. They're the real version of my planners. Oh my God, they're so much better. The $2,000 ones. No, the $800 ones are way better than my, than my $300 mono, mono price ones. Ah, oh, this is so complicated. Aren't those open back though? What is, it? What is yeah, your that purpose? Was the, that was the joke. I want quiet. I want to be able to not hear anything. Well, that's that's not a thing. You want to get as close to drowning, uh, canceling out all background noise as possible. Well, with the bows, I don't really hear anything when I turn on the noise canceling. That's true. I think that noise canceling right now, the noise canceling part of wireless noise canceling headphones has gotten pretty good across the board. Yeah. It used to be that there was Bose and then there was everyone else. And Bose was head shoulders far and way ahead of everyone. And then Sony has pretty much caught up to this point and it's pretty much a, a question of preference between the two. I heard that the Sony ones were better. I think that that's kind of a recent thing and it might be, I don't know. It, it seems like there are a lot of biases. Like people for a long time thought Bose was like the really nice, good, expensive, high quality audio stuff. And then in this emergent category of wireless noise canceling headphones, a lot of other players caught up really quickly and a lot of other players that actually know what they're doing in audio and making headphones caught up really quickly. I don't actually think that Bose sound that bad. I don't know. I don't think they them. sound that bad either. I think that this is the question about the headphones, right? Is that your purpose for these headphones is going to be one of two things. It's going to be either for the active noise canceling or it's for the sound quality, right? Cause all the headphones are wireless. All of them have pretty good battery life for being wireless headphones these days. I mean, you're going to go essentially a week between charges on any one of the top you know, five or six headphones that you're looking at. So then the questions become questions of minutiae between, oh, what is the sound quality of this one versus what is the sound quality of that one? Or does this one let sound through? Or does this one not let sound through? Or how do the controls work on this one? Or like what colors does it come in? And things like that. So... It really becomes a lot more subjective than people think, and I don't think there's one best. Mm -hmm. So you seem to be leaning more towards the Bose. Well, that's just because I have the 25s and they work fine and they sound good. So the 35s are exact same body as the 25s with the exception of the external controls for stuff and the wirelessness. But other than that, the shape of the ear cups, the 
ear pads, the headband, all that stuff is exactly the same. I mean, the 25s sometimes hurt my ears after a while. Ear suck? Where uh, it feels like it was like pulling the inside of your eardrums out no, through the ears? No, like, it feels like it's like pushing against my ear. Oh, so it's too shallow against your ears? Yeah, kind of. I don't know. I guess I have, big, I guess I have big ears. I have I have my personal pair of Sony, horribly named WX one thousand MX threes. You tried them on your heads. What did you think? They feel like pillows on your ears, but I'm worried about the top band breaking. Don't do that. They. Oh my god. Oh, you are fearless. Apparently, they crack, and you're now like increasing the crack ability. Are they within the time that you can return them? I mean, probably not, but for our listeners at home, what I'm doing is I'm showing oh my that, God. that headphones are designed to actually work this way. Not in... Mm, mm. And I'm bending the, the headphones open and closed and back and forth and I all. I can't look at this. Various different ways, and Greg is is, is uh, looking away in disgust. Oh, man, that just... But I just proved to him that they, they're fine and they work great. For now, you probably just decrease their life by, like, a I lot. literally sit in an office in a very comfortable chair, completely still staring at a screen going, why isn't this working? So I think that it's going to be okay for the headphones. I really uh, think they do. I, I these don't, don't even These don't even actually see the light of day like in sunlight i don't think i've ever worn these outside are those vampire headphones maybe maybe mm. i don't think it's a sunlight thing i think it's just like it hasn't been exposed to outdoor oxygen so like the smog of los angeles i mean the smog of los angeles is definitely in your apartment you realize that there's right? so much of it in here right here and also it's everywhere office. i can see it in my it's office all over the place the distance between where i sit in my office and downtown los angeles i can see the levels of smog i can yeah. see it moving and Coming and going and all different kinds of things. Well, there's also, yeah. I mean, there's also like marine layers that make it that far sometimes. That's true. So you never know. That is true. I don't know what to do. This is a predicament because... This is a predicament? Yeah, they don't... Apparently, those ones have issues. The, I'm, I saw what you did. Don't do it again because it's going to give me a heart attack. But, you know, they <laughs> they apparently... The, the head part breaks. And... Uh, I don't know what to do. So there's between that, the Sonys that could potentially break, the Bose, which I have a pair of them and they have worked forever. And that's about it. I think that a lot of people have run into this situation. And so we might need a crowdsource this answer. I don't know. I mean, the answer is pretty obvious based on sales. They tells you you should just buy the Sonys. Is that true? I thought the Bose still were up there. They're like neck and neck. That was my understanding. Um, I've seen a lot more coverage recently of the Sony's. I would say through this past Christmas season, holiday season, up until now. But for the past like three or four years or so, it's been all Sony QC all day long. So maybe they're catching up. I think the big, I mean, the Sony's, I think are more comfortable. The Bose, I mean, I haven't heard those, but I've heard Sony headphones before. I know what they sound like. Is the sound quality a big deal to you? Yeah, I mean, I want good sound quality. I mean, the Boses are more natural. They don't have, like, the Bo the Sonys always have exacerbated bass. I did not notice that in mine. You might like exacerbated bass. Well, I actually prefer a more flat sound. We've talked about this before on the show. The Sonys, or the, the Bose are pretty balanced. They have a little bit of bass, but they're not, they're not terrible. I didn't really, see, the thing is for me is, like, the, the sound 
quote unquote quality of the phone of the headphones is not the main purpose of a headphone like this, especially for if I have such a narrow specific purpose as I am sitting in my air conditioned office staring at screens. So for me, the noise canceling, the wirelessness and the comfort are the three biggest things, most important things. Everything else is distant forth after that. So I didn't really pay that much attention to the sound quality because I knew it was going to be acceptable, whichever route I went. And the other th- things were more important to me, the wirelessness, including battery life, the noise canceling power to drown out, um, you know, Debbie from accounting's really annoying voice when she's like laughing Dude, at her. Dude, why are you so mean to Debbie? Uh, I'm sorry, Debbie, you just got to, you know, like your laughter, you just got to turn it down. You just got to turn it down. I'm sorry. Maybe we just need to get some noise canceling foam in the office or something. I don't know. You know um, what else I could get? What's that? I could get Beat Studios. I'm going to kick you off of this show if you do that. The thing is, is that Beats have the W2 chip, which means that they connect really well with Apple devices. I don't care. I'm going to kick you off this show. They if actually you do don't that. sound that bad. I don't care. I'm going to kick you off this show if you do that. Well, you know what? We're going we're to let the <laughs> listeners decide. We're going to let the people who listen to this podcast decide your fate if you choose to do that. So, friends, let us know. That's just gonna be like Aaron deciding. <laughs> it'll be. It'll just be a bunch of gifts of Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator going thumbs down, and then you know, well, sorry, Greg, the people have spoken. The people have spoken, and I have all the passwords. So, I mean, the Beats Club, they have the Beats Solo Three, which has the W one chip, which means it's the same thing as a pair of AirPods, and they're only one hundred ninety nine dollars. Joaquin Phoenix. I don't know. Phoenix before he lost his mind. I was just looking at that because they don't have those on Amazon. So that was why that that third option is not there. (sighs) I don't know. I mean, I could just get the refurbished ones and then just uh, see what happens. I've bought a lot of refurbished items in my life and they've all worked out perfectly for me. My two computer monitors are both refurbished. These headphones are refurbished. I feel like I've bought a bunch of other stuff. I'm looking around my apartment to see if I have any other refurbished things that I could tell Greg about. You feel like they're going to break. They don't feel that materially different from the Bose. The Bose I had uh, the Bose for a long time, I and have. I have never once thought about them breaking. I can't let... I would let you bar them if I didn't literally use them every single day, so... I mean, I don't really need to borrow them. It's just like whether or not they're going to last. That's the question. So if we buy them and then they break, then you're like, okay, well, because there's people that said that they bought them and then within six months they broke. Oh, I haven't had them for six months. I don't know. Yeah, so you don't even know. You might have broken headphones. These could be broken already. There could be slight cracks in the band and you don't even know yet. I feel like they would have broken by now if they if that were the case. Because cracks like that, especially in plastic, even higher quality plastic, is not going to last that long. Especially for taking it off your head, putting them down. Even the limited amount that I do at my office, it's still gonna. Do you to be like? A do you put them on all like carefully, like that? I mean, not super carefully, but like that thing that I just did, where I kind of expand, <laughs> expand them a little bit. Like I don't do it like that. I just put them on normally on my head, like so. Oh my god, you spread them apart so far! Wow, you like spread them really far apart, like you're cracking a chicken leg. I gotta. Oh I, my god, I gotta watch my hair, man. Like. It's super important. Gotta maintain the quaff. The quaff. 
cloth. It's very important. How can you even talk without? So he doesn't have headphones today because I'm not self monitoring. He's not self monitoring, and he just put on noise canceling headphones and kept talking. Well, so you're not one of those people that starts yelling when you put headphones on. No. Interesting. Interesting. No, I usually don't. But that's the whole point of self monitoring, though, is that you can hear yourself, and so you are able to moderate how you speak into the microphone on this here show. But today we are one functioning pair of headphones short, so we are. Mm. Mm-hmm. We have decided that Greg needs them more than I do, and so yeah, I don't self monitor. So um, I've decided to put you on the life raft, and I'm going to hang off the life raft into the icy water. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of hang out here as long as I can, make it as long as I can, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, I make it to the end of the movie. Yeah, totally. That's a Titanic reference. Boom. Is it? Is yep. it now? Yep, totally is. Hmm. Greg, do you know what episode this is? 27,452. This is episode number 29. Do you know what that means? Uh, it's the 30th episode. It's the 30th episode of the Public Function Show. Wow. It's amazing. Hmm. That's pretty solid. 30 episodes of a weekly show is over half a year. Over six months. We've taken a couple of breaks, but we've caught up. So I feel like it's a pretty solid accomplishment. Yeah. What do you think? pretty solid as you would say do you think that it's solid enough to like put on your linkedin resume um as opposed to what i mean it's on my (laughs) website (laughs) well so all right so on your resume you're gonna put your website on there right you're gonna put your work history Uh, my resume doesn't have my work my website on it yet would you all right so let's say you've written my blog article let's say you're updating your resume today Mm -hmm. and in this hypothetical today you have a fully functioning website Right. With here's, what, here's what I'm going to do with my, with my resume. If I do what a new resume, yeah. it's just going to be a single sheet of paper. Right? Which is supposed to be, yeah. Okay. okay. Well, you know, hold Like on. a physical sheet of paper. It's like a physical sheet of paper, okay. right? Eight by 11, eight and a half by 11. Yeah. And then all it has on it in the middle of it is a link to my website in hack font. And that's it. Like, like Courier New? No, hack the font. No, but not everybody has hacked the font though. You print it on a PDF. Oh. Give me a PDF of a link to the website. I'm going to hand it to somebody. How do they click on it? <laughs> That's their problem. They wanted a piece of paper. If they That's downloaded true. the PDF, they'd be able to click the link. That's an unhackable resume. Yeah. Maybe it's, you shouldn't uh, request paper or print it. Yeah. Get out of here with your paper. That's a pretty That's a pretty cool That's a pretty cool way of doing it. It's a pretty things. bold move. I don't know if I'd actually do that. I'm just kidding. No, that's a pretty... <laughs> that's one of those like shock value or like mm-hmm. novelty kind of gag moves. So like that guy, do you remember that guy a few years ago who built an entire like, um, this was before Mario Maker existed. He built an entire like Mario style video game on a website. And it was like his resume? And it was like his resume. Like he had to jump, like he jumped down, he jumped down one of the pipes and it went into the underworld and then like he walked through the underworld and it had like words about his job history and things. And he was, uh, I believe he was a game developer of sorts. But that was, I remember that being a big hit on the internet. And big hit on the internet. I don't know Did if that guy ever. Sh- I'm going to assume that that guy got hired off that because of how big a deal it was, but who knows? Who knows? I think virality is fleeting and not necessarily as big a deal as maybe we think it is. But if you're the person out there who made that resume, let us know. Let us know how it went. Shout out to you. Do you know if if uh, our good friend had the QC 35-2s? We have had more than one former coworker that was rocking the QC thirty five twos. The one I'm talking about, you know, what I'm talking about the one that had the QC thirty five twos. Was I'm asking you? Was it was those? It the was twos? the QC thirty five twos. He had the triple blacks. He's also really small, so they probably fit his head better. You know who I'm talking about? 
You know who you are. Uh, is that something that you've run into that's a problem? I just feel like when I wear the 35, the 25s for a long time, they start to hurt. Like the climbing force is too high or they don't fit on your head They just correctly? don't fit well. Do these, do these actually sound exactly like the 25s? Are they any better than the 25s or are they just the 25s with Bluetooth? My understanding is that they're 25s with Bluetooth and That's maybe like slightly same, better noise canceling. Like the same thing I already have. Why would I want to do that? I mean, they're kind of an old standby at this point. Why would I want to? Why don't you just buy like four different pairs, try them all on? I ain't rich. What are you talking about? I mean, this is the that's what returns are for. I suppose. I mean, I'm I'm sure that Amazon will send you the return slips in I the mean, box. I mean, Amazon will get annoyed if you do that. If you I shop, if they, by I wonder returning. if they have a a algorithm that's like, yeah, they probably do. This person has bought six pairs of the exact same type of headphones. Let's make sure he's got return slips for all of them. <laughs> and like populates the boxes automatically and tells the the robot the, the robots. packing robots be like, hey, make sure you put the return slips in there because he's probably gonna want them. I don't think they do that because that would entice you to return them. But it would make sense. If it would make buying, sense for them to do that. Unless they want that many things. Right? I, I feel like there's going to be, there's got to be a date in the system somewhere that's just like, on this date, start sending gift receipts or everything. Right? Doesn't that make sense? Big bad Amazon and their algorithms and their recommendations and them telling me that I should buy another rice maker when I just bought a rice maker, which makes no sense at all. But the other things that we're talking about Make perfect sense. They should totally do that. I'm doing all my research live on the podcast. I mean, this is what we do the show for. This is this is the <sighs> hashtag content that we're here for. What are you looking at now? Are you looking at different ones? Are you looking at reviews? What are you thinking? I'm just looking at the bows and then reading the reviews and then looking at the Sonys and then reading the reviews. And then I'm like, I really only have two choices and I don't like dualities in life. <laughs> Why I don't you more like choices. dualities? It I makes want life more easier. choices. I don't want to choose between two. In I want to choose between cases, like- it makes life easier because choosing between two things is easier than choosing between three well, things. Well, the thing the thing that's annoying to me is that I already have the 25s. So I'm like looking at these things and all they are is the 25s of Bluetooth and they're $350. I had the 25s and I had an adapter. Do you still have the adapter? You can just give that to me. No, I handed those I handed those down. With the adapter? With the adapter. You, how did you else. not know that I would need not need it one day? I mean, this was when I bought the Sony's. Who'd you give it to? My significant other. Give it back. No, she no, loves them. I'm just kidding. She said it was a game changer for in the office. So she uses the adapter. What adapter did you have? Did they actually work? It, so it's this company. I got it on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. But they have I an saw app, one of them. A, adapter that basically it's kind of curved like the bottom of the ear cup. It has a little plug that goes into the yeah. actual plug of the QC25. Yeah. And you stick it in there. It has a button on the bottom. You just hold it down that turns on the, the Bluetooth or whatever and it goes into the, it feeds an analog signal into the thing. Yeah. How well did it work? It worked fine. It worked fine. The, Why and then the, the, well, the thing about the adapter is that the battery life is not good. It's only about four and a half, five hours tops. Mm. And you had to have this special cable that like um, looked like an audio plug that you plug the adapter plug into. And then the other end was USB-A. It was like a special cable to charge it. I hate it when they do that. So, the so it's like a headphone jack that charges it because they're too lazy to put a exactly. USB on it. Exactly. It's pretty dumb. Exactly. It looked kind of janky because it made one side of the headphones look bigger, which if you're into aesthetics, that's a thing. It worked okay. I mean, if you're a big fan of your QC25s and you really, really want to go wireless, but you don't have budget for it, it's worth a shot. 
if you don't mind recharging. I mean, the 25s kind of, they kind of do annoy me after a while. So I don't know if I'd be able to listen to them for seven hours straight. Yeah. One thing that is actually beneficial for having the 25s plus a wireless adapter uh, is that you can turn the noise canceling on and off independent of the wirelessness. Hmm. Oh, and you can't do that on the you 25s? You can't do that on the 35s. Are you sure? It's all one button. I did because we asked, I asked the coworker that shall not be named who owns a QC35 twos. It's one button for everything. It's one button for the wirelessness and noise canceling all in one. Hmm. So that might be a thing that you need. Maybe it's not a thing you need. Don't really know. But I'll have a link to it. Oh, man. The adapter itself was actually not super cheap, but not super expensive. It was about $70, I want to say. I'm looking. There's one on here that's 50 Maybe that's it. I don't know. I think there's more now. But the thing is, once you pay 50 for that, you're almost towards getting new headphones. You might as well just buy another pair of headphones. You're almost there. You're in, almost... In, in people who buy headphones land thinking. Yeah. I mean, you've you're like 50 the way to 250. 50, 250, whatever. It's the same thing. It's the same amount of money. I mean, it's same, only five times as much. Same exact. It's just, precise, it's just five times as many. Precise amount of money. It's five times as many 50s. Yeah. The noise canceling is the biggest deal, though. Yeah. It's right? okay. Because I mean, we the noise canceling on the 25s is amazing. It works fine. I think the newer ones actually are um, noticeably better. Is it significantly better? Maybe not, but you will notice a difference. I did notice a difference in the Sonys that the noise canceling is better. These The Sonys actually do a pretty good job of canceling out voices. That's too much. If someone comes up and talks just, to me, I want to be Well, able to no, like them. in terms of general, a general kind of, a general din of voices like in the background. Mm, right. A cacophony and of voices. Is not necessarily at that level. That's a good episode title. Cacophony, cacophony of voices. In your head. No, the inner head makes it too long. Well, well it's funny, but it's too long. Parentheses. But it makes the title you too long. You ever seen a, like a song title that's like uh, the title of the song, but then in parentheses, like a whole nother extra thing in the song to make it look, I, I mean, it's hipster. any artist who does that needs to just learn how to name things. Naming things is hard, Greg. That's like naming a function like, Add to cart, parentheses. <laughs> we'll add product to cart. Can you have parentheses in the name of a function? I don't think you can. I don't know, but you could figure yeah, it out. You I, could do dashes or something. Let's put, that, let's put that in VS Code real quick and see what the built-in linters. We should do VS these little... Code. We should do these little challenges. Uh, VS this Code is, is so annoying. I actually thought of this the other day. So yeah. remember how we were talking about code editors mm-hmm. in a previous episode? One way that we could kind of test out some of the built-in functionalities is that we could come up with like some super janky, messed up, doesn't follow any sort of linting syntactically incorrect code and just copy and paste it into various editors and see how they respond. Just see what they do. Just straight out of the box. I'm pretty sure that they would work. I mean, they would work, but it would be interesting to see the various levels of how bright red is the squiggly line. Is there a squiggly line? Are you going to let me proceed? Oh man, you're reminding me of my plight. What is your plight? Your plight? I lost all of my color schemes for IntelliJ. Oh, I'm, oh I'm gonna your find them. Is, you got no, no, no. You got to back this up. Your plight is not that you lost your color schemes. Your plight is that you have a new machine. Well, you, yeah, you buried the lead, Greg. You buried the lead. Tell us, tell us about the plight of setting up a new machine because that <sighs> is the plight that you Man. actually want to talk about. It actually wasn't that big of a deal because getting a new Mac computer, I decided <clears throat> that I didn't want to restore anything. So I actually started with a brand new dot file. 
Because I had it all backed up. Just fine. Just fine. It's all backed up. The windows Everything was things, there. But yes, yes, that is fine. No, and then I just figured I had like six years of dot file configs and just all kinds of stuff going on, packages installed, all kinds of things on my various backups, either manual, I could have like dragged files over or I could have whatever. And I decided that I didn't want to do that. So I just started with a completely fresh install of Mojave. Mojave. Of Mojave. And I just installed everything from scratch and it was fine. Did you have to update to Mojave or was it in there out of the box? Oh, it came with Mojave. Okay. Whenever you buy a new Mac, they give you... Well, I was wondering how recent... Because you bought this very recently within the last couple of weeks. Show me a blank page. Oh, that's a purchase page. Okay. Well, that's cool. All right. It's got the Sony's. I don't know. You just we'll see. Okay, that's. Cool. I don't want to. The thing is, I don't want to buy the same headphones that I have. You literally just bought the headphones while we were talking about your new machine. <laughs> that's how I make decisions, man. <laughs> that's how we do things. I mean, you gotta okay. you gotta have a an ability to be quiet in an office. So. Okay, let's go, let's go back to the, so, the laptop. Where was I at? You bought the laptop recently. It came with Mojave. Out it of the came box with Mojaves because you bought it so recently. I wasn't I wasn't sure exactly when the no the minute they the released Mojaves they. They drop all the new laptops, have to have it. Like they, But there's got to be like some in the back of a store somewhere that they can't update. Well, also mine is the new 2019 MacBook Pro. So it, it was like... It, it, it's only like with a two, It's only like a two-week-old... Like it's only been out for a few months. No, I think it's only been out for like a month. I thought month. it was like March. Maybe it's May? No, it's I think May. because... So it's they, only been like a month. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're it's been like right, a sorry. month, yeah. Okay, so you got Mojave. Got Mojaves. Um, Mo, Mo, Mojave? Mojaves. Yeah, I mean, I just decided that I, you know, I needed a laptop and I'm working on something that has iOS and I didn't want to not have a Mac. And then we, we argued about this off air about, you know, the lock. We have to talk about it on air. Or no, we didn't use the audio. We argued no, for a while that about... that is going into director's cut. Oh yeah, there there's a 45 minute conversation that yeah, is going it was into with Greg getting cut. annoyed because Albert was pretty thinking of like one insane, of these days, one of these days we'll release cases. that. One of these days, he was his arguments were really insane. He's like, "Would you pay one hundred thousand dollars for a MacBook Pro?" I mean, we're getting there. All right, anyway, I want to go back to that conversation. Anyway, so, you got you got a laptop, you got Mojave, you're setting it up. What what is your setup process? Because setting it up from scratch without. Yeah. Using any sort of backups or anything. This is new for you? This is something you've done before? I've done not? it a bunch of times before. I, I usually like to set up computers with no backups, usually. Unless, like, I was in the middle of, like, if I had a perfectly set up computer and then I needed to buy a new one for some reason, I would probably restore it. But, like, since I had some time, I was able to just, like, configure it correctly and not have to worry about what was on it or restoring anything or worrying about time. So... Typically, I just like the first thing I downloaded, I think, was one password in Chrome. Naturally. So I got those. And then, um, and then I just start downloading things that I remember that I need. Like I first go to the App Store and I download like whatever apps I've bought on the App Store, like OmniFocus. The Mac Store, the Mac App Store. The Mac, the Mac App Store. Yeah. Which formed previously known as iTunes. Well, like, yeah, but I mean, they didn't have the they didn't have a Mac App Store until like ten point 
Then? The artist formerly known as iTunes. The, arm, the well, no, they, you could never download. Couldn't you? Couldn't you get no. apps from iTunes? You could you restore. Your app from you could restore apps from iTunes. But you can actually like download them. I don't think so. Like new ones. Because the iOS, iOS always had the App Store, and then the right. Mac never had an App Store until ten point. But before eight that, eight or was, nine or something, I, there was no apps. There's a very large Mac. gap of my Mac usage. So there was no there was no app store. You just instead of having that little warning that's like this is from an untrusted developer, that was like the only way you could install things on a Mac. Oh. Before the Mac App Store. When they added the Mac App Store, I think it was two releases later, they added Gatekeeper. Oh. And then it was like, oh, this isn't from a trusted whatever. And that was when they were all like still thinking that the Mac App Store would be something. And then there was a while there where the Mac App Store like Everybody pulled their apps from the Mac App Store because it was too expensive and they the desktop software wasn't making any money. And then they started adding them back. I don't know why, but like there's a few apps that are back in the App Store that gotcha. were out for a while. What kind of apps were these that you were downloading from the store? Um, I don't really remember specifically. It's like a bunch of small things because like there's there's bigger apps that I've bought on the App Store and then eventually transitioned to non-App Store licenses when I needed to upgrade. So like Git Tower, I think I paid for, even though it was on the App Store at one point in time. Like, I bought, like, version 2 and then, like, bought version 4 out of the App Store. So how do you get your updates for that, then? Through the App Store? No, they update themselves. Oh, uh, okay. Once it's, like, a non-App Store app, it just It just does, it has its own updater. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so, like, there was that one, and then... What else did I... I think I bought Kaleidoscope a long time ago through the App Store, and then I vaguely remember buying it outside, but I have no idea where my license what key is. What is Kaleidoscope? It's a it's a file differ. It's like a it's like a diff tool, but oh. it can diff actual folders and not just files, oh. which I used a lot when there was a lot of like um, you know merging of files to like servers and figuring out what's changed. Was that before we had these nice diff tools built into like our Git clients, our VCS clients? Uh, I mean, I used to use SVN Tortoise SVN, and it had a good diff tool like a long time ago. Tortoise was not bad. Yeah, and I, had, I remember Tortoise. Tortoise was one of the few ones that actually was cross-platform. So you know what Kaleidoscope is like beyond compare? It's the same. You don't even know what that is? Oh, my God. What are you doing with your life? Beyond compare is a Windows tool that Never allows you Windows, to diff so. files. Like it diffs folders. It's really good because it'll actually like diff an entire folder and tell you if one file in the folder is different. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and Kaleidoscope was built like a long time ago by this company, Black Pixel, that think is also in was like an agency or like an ad agency or a software shop and they built kaleidoscope because they were using it a lot they wanted like a really beautiful mac app to do file diffs and it can like diff images it'll highlight certain pixels in an image that are different if you have like two images really yeah if you have like when two, was this it's about it's like a 2011 i think they were still popular and, and since they were then, doing they were doing image diffs yeah so like if there was like an image that had uh I don't know. Like the easiest way to tell would be like an image that has like a different exposure. It would sh- it would highlight the exposure differences. Oh wow! But then like I don't know. Pretty much the whole image would be a different color then. But I think it it changes the color. It highlights the colors depending on how different they are. So if they're only slightly different hues of the same color or slightly different brightness levels. Black Pixel has been acquired by Hypergiant Space Age Solutions, further fueling Hypergiant Industries commercial software division. I have no idea what that is, but this is why they don't have this is why your kaleidoscope anymore. Well, okay. it still works on Mac, but it um, it hasn't been updated in a long time. There was a point in time where they did uh, they did like send one more update it to it to like make it compatible. I think with 
it wasn't the lions. It was like the first mountain one. The first mountain, mountain goat. Mountain leopard. Mountain goat version of Mac, whatever that mountain was. Mountain feline. Whichever one was the first one, I don't remember. Um, either way, it still works, but I installed that off the app store and then um, and then I just start downloading different programs that I remember. So like I could look at the backup and look at all the applications that I had on my computer. And sometimes before I like wipe a computer or like release a computer for whatever reason, I'll just like LS the applications folder and then save it to a text file so I know all the programs that I had. Something like that. I didn't do that. So basically I just downloaded things from memory. And then once all that was done, I had like IntelliJ, I had VS Code, I had Spotify, I had Slack, I had whatever core programs that like I remember needing. And then I always install Alfred, yes. the power pack. So I always install that. Um, I think that's it. And then I always oh, have iStat menus. I installed that. Um, and that's pretty much it. And then once I had all that configured... Then I start installing like um, <clears throat> languages. So I install um, PyEnv so I can have different versions of Python. It's like it's kind of like RubyEnv. So you can have like Python 3 as your default one. And then because you override the one that comes with the Mac. Which is like 2.5 or something. Some something junk like that. Yeah. old. Something that's yeah. going to go end of life in like well, they've six already, hours. They've already end of life Python 2.7, so... I think it's, it's not if it's not end of life now, it's definitely not supported. It's it's going out. No, way. I think all of two, all the way through two point nine is done January yeah. twenty twenty. Something like that. Yeah. So I set my system default as three, so I would start forcing myself to use it because I always use two seven because I'm too lazy to care about three. Um and then I installed installed three, set that as a default with PyEnv, and then installed two point seven, and then I install RBM, even though I don't write Ruby, I don't want to have the the Mac default Ruby. So no, because that always, one's an old one too. I always install the newest version of Ruby and then never touch Ruby for the next year of my life, but I have RVM installed. And then I install NVM and then install Naturally. whatever the newest yep. the newest LTS is. And I install, I used to install Java 8, 9, and 10 and then swap between them. Because we needed all three. <laughs> well, they end of life to everything up to 11 on Mac. Yeah. The only thing you can get from Oracle and OpenJDK is 11, apparently. You yeah. can install 8 if you really want to, but you have to, like, download it and install it yourself. But if I you think wanna, there's an 8 in Homebrew. Nope, they dropped it. Did they? Only 11. And it's a poor... I'm a, trying to remember because I, I went through this recently literally just as did well. It. It's a, it's a, I did this in February. It's a cask and it's only 11. Oh. Maybe I did download it's it. It's not even a default brew formula. It's a cask. Yeah, it's one of the weird ones. Yeah. I remember I had, I think, I think you're correct. I think I did have to actually download eight because as every single Java app we've ever run into only runs on eight for whatever reason. Well, eight and nine and 10 and 11 are completely different. And 11 is very different than eight and even seven. We used to have to run seven. So I don't know. Uh, I installed 11. I don't have anything below that. Although I don't, if I'm writing any Java in my new life, it's going to be Kotlin. So it's going to be probably 11 Ooh, modern compatible. That new hotness. It's going to be whatever compatible modern Java, I'm sure. And whatever Google tells you to write. Whatever they tell me to write. Totally. Um, that's pretty much it. I just install the languages, install whatever programs I can remember I need. And then as I use it, I remember, oh, I also need X. I yeah, need yeah. X. As you X. bring up your old projects, like <laughs> if you start pulling down your github history or something and you go oh i needed that thing mm -hmm. oh i needed this thing pretty much the only thing i really need is alfred and i can actually survive with spotlight but it's not as good 
I don't like spot like it doesn't it come back. It no, it doesn't return. I think maybe I've gotten too used to like how Alfred thinks in terms of how it pattern matches stuff. But I find the results that Spotlight comes back with now completely unusable. Well, you know that Alfred is indexed by Spotlight. Right, but... They the, have different decisions, I think, about what they show. They index... I thought the rates were the only thing that were different with indexing. They index files with Spotlight, and then they index the programs themselves, I think. That's why you get different program results. But I think that... For some reason, I think that... I feel like Alfred is able to deep search. So, like, if I type in keyboard, the word keyboard, it'll give it'll give me the keyboard section within system settings. Yeah. But if I do that in Spotlight, it just gives me <clears throat> system settings. I think that might be true. I think there's a couple things they index themselves to make it smarter, but for file search, it's definitely just using the Spotlight index. It should be the same. It's the same index. But I think they make different decisions about what they show you in the dropdown. So they don't... That like, might be it. Because, like, the thing with, with Spotlight that's really annoying is you type Chrome and it'll... It'll show you like Chrome downloads. Yes, yes. Like that, the downloads in the yeah. download folder. You're like, I don't. That's not what I want. That's not what I want. I like want the, the CR downloads and things that aren't finished, like incomplete Chrome downloads. It'll show you those, and you're like, That's oh, not what I want. I want that thing that's called Chrome. That's an app. Yeah, it's not that hard. I know you know what it is. It's right yeah, there. Yeah, like come on. Four colors. So yeah, I did all that, and then what else did I do? Um, I enabled dark mode. Naturally. Yeah, change the desktop background. I did notice that I changed. I had the desktop background at first on this like jellyfish-looking thing. That was like an electric jellyfish, and it looked really cool. But the jellyfish's like light parts were almost white, like they were very, very bright. And I noticed that it was burning in on the on my. Oof. It was burning in on my um my 4K monitor at home. Oof! But only on one of the monitors. And then I switched the background to something that was less extreme and it went away. So I was like, I'm not going to use that background. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know. You got to, you got, that's Karen feeding a monitors. Like, don't, don't put the super, super don't, white yeah. stuff. Don't put a white background on it unless it's going to be the whole screen and then it's just going to make it dull. What about, uh, what about Yammer Niners? Yammer Niners. I mean, I didn't install or like, it. Or like Docker or stuff like that. So you got into <coughs> oh, we had a fun part about Docker. We oh, talked yeah. about it. Tell, tell us about what you ran into with Docker. So I found a bug in... Let's be very clear about this before Albert gets all mad. Um, I found a very, very weird bug in VS Code. Dun, 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 waiting for him to yell at me. Ah, okay. Well, we'll um, see if this was actually a VS Code thing, but... No, Please continue. It, it, tell us. It's very weird. I've, I have noticed this about other things, not just VS Code, but if you open your user folder in VS Code, now you're like, why would I ever do that? Right? I've done that. I do that all the time. Some people might say, why would you do that? Well, because that's where all your dot .files are, and sometimes I don't like to go code Bash, .zsh config or whatever. Dish, yeah. Config this, that config. This other config. It's a lot of easier just to say code tilde. They're all there. Yeah, so I just say code tilde. But have you ever noticed, well, you don't have Mojave, but if you open your user folder on VS Code, Mojave will tell you, hey, VS Code wants to access your contacts. And you're like, why? Why is this? I think it's because your contacts are stored inside of your user folder in the application support folder somehow. What? And whenever something touches that file, Mojave thinks you're accessing it. Accessing it. 
but it's not. And I've noticed this on multiple things because IntelliJ did it, I think, or something something else did it when I opened up the user folder. But weird things happen when you open up the user folder on That's so editor. strange. That's strange for a number of reasons. One, why is that file in the user directory? Because it's your, your contacts. So it's in the application support, Apple slash contact slash whatever. Where else are they going to put it? But how does that count as trying the to access enclave? that? The secure enclave? How does opening the root... Because you're touching the file and they probably have some crude thing. It's like if anything literally reads the the pref or the plist file of your contacts. Even just to open it in a text editor? Well, it's, they're reading, Even it's if you reading don't actually it all. It's indexing it, it all for That's searching. True. It's reading it. This is a reading. thing that Dropbox ran into a few years ago too where they were... Um, they When they were syncing their indexes across machines, they would they would sync a preview of the files. And so mm-hmm. that some some enterprising young gentleman decided to build in a thing that phoned home anytime a program tried to access one of his files and he got a phone home from his Dropbox app. And he was like, why is Dropbox trying to look at my files? And what they were doing was that they were generating web previews in case you access them via the website. Hmm. They weren't actually, well, they said. Yeah, what I really said want they is weren't like, actually storing any of the information that was in the files yeah. or reading, actually <clears throat> reading them for content. But it's still kind of sketchy because they didn't really talk about it. So it, it seems like that is a thing that happens in computer systems where reading access to files and understanding what that access means is hard. I feel like Dropbox gets a bad rap because they're just like, yeah, they're touching your files. You're putting files on a sync server. I mean, they do some weird stuff with the OS, but that's only because the OS doesn't let them do what they want to do. To make I think people assume work. that you can touch the files without accessing them. No, you can't. And do that's that. not the that's not true. <laughs> How are you going to make an image preview, a thumbnail preview of a file without some, reading it? There's some nuance there. I, I would be of the opinion that I would say, Dropbox, I don't need the previews. Well, then you should be able to just turn them off. Should, the user should be able to turn them off, yes. But then you got to build 900 settings and I don't know, whatever. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. Um, when you open the user folder in VS Code, I noticed a very weird thing with Docker. So whenever you had VS Code open on the user folder and then you open Docker, Docker wouldn't start. And I'm like, what is going on? So I'm like, my first instinct is like, Mojave doesn't work with Docker. And I'm like, well, that can't be the case because everybody in the world would be complaining about it and then maybe somebody would fix it, hopefully. Or they'd file a radar and Apple would never fix it. But whatever. I would assume that they would have been fixed. So then I start Googling it, and there's a lot of people that have had this problem. Like, there's a bunch of open issues on Docker. There's open issues on, which is Moby or whatever it is. There's open issues on the core of Docker. There's open issues on Docker for Mac. There's open issues on everything. And I realized after all this troubleshooting, I'm like, is Docker broken on this new computer? And then I closed VS Code for some reason and then restarted Docker, and it worked. So then I'm like, okay, what the heck is going on? So I open up the, well, first of all, I think I open up the console and then sorted for com.docker.whatever to see what the, the setting or the, the log uh, right. for that particular app. And it was saying like a weird thing, like this setting will turn Docker into listen mode or I don't know, something like that. Some like weird message that was like wrapped in a bunch of weird characters and then repeated in the same thing. It was like a bunch of like, it was like if you hit, um, there's like the ASCII version of an A, obviously. And then there's like the escape key sequence for an A, which is like backslash something, bracket A, bracket something, or something weird like that. It was a bunch of those. Like if you were to send an A as a, key, a keyboard A as a key sequence, 
It's like four oh, characters. As, a, as an ASCII sequence. It's not a C, it's not an ASCII. Well, sure, it is ASCII, but it's like it's an actual like key press sequence as if yes. the key pressed it. Yes. And it's like backslide. It's not the like, actual message of what the, the yeah. keystroke is actually doing rather yes, than the yes. actual result. That. Yes. Yes. So Those it's not like it's a, fun. It's not like a UTF-8 or like an ASCII interpretation of an A or, or an ASCII code interpretation of an A. Yeah, it's the actual key sequence of pressing the key. So anyways, it was that wrapped in a bunch of messages that were repeated and it was just saying that over and over and over again. So obviously Docker was like in a loop where something was trying to send a message to it while it was booting and it was the settings change to Docker's like boot sequence and it was getting locked. So then I closed VS Code and it opened and then I closed Docker opened VS Code on the same, again, because it was remembering what folder it was on, turned Docker on and hanged. And then I repeated it like four times. And then I went and posted something on, which you got mad at me. I posted on the VS Code help support and someone responded within 20 minutes saying they were having the exact same issue for the past two days and they couldn't figure it out. So I helped one soul in the world. Um, and then the ticket kind of just ended because they're like, well, it's this weird use case where- Oh, it's the other guy's fault. Mm-hmm. That's what you said. I mean, that's what everybody says. Isn't that what? Isn't that what uh, the Docker issue said? The Docker issue said or someone what? had alluded that it might be VS Code, and that's what caused me to eventually close it. Um, but they hadn't like directly correlated having the home folder open, and that's when I posted it on the VS Code ticket, and one of their developers was like, "It's very interesting. It's very key that you noticed that it was only with the home folder." I think he was just saying that because they're like, they're not going to fix it. But at least now it's documented in their GitHubs that people that are looking for this issue will find it and see the conversations and they know to close VS Code, I guess. I don't know. That was fun. That was my Docker experience. But it works fine. Now it turns on and it works great. That's fun. It was very fun. I spent about two hours on it. It's always something. Well, I was a little worried with this computer because they keep changing things in macOS so that it's less like... Unless you develop things in Xcode, which is like a gilded and protected app, like you almost can't use your Mac anymore. So I don't know. I was a little worried. That's kind of one of the pros and cons of using a lot of open source stuff is that, yes, it's open and extensible and anybody can use it, but um, compatibility is not guaranteed. There are a lot of very smart, enterprising people who are working on those things to talk to each other nicely, but they don't get paid to do that job. And so there's only so much that they can do in their free time on the weekends. So I am just floored every single day that I use these sorts of technologies that they work at all, considering the fact that literally nobody gets paid to do this stuff. So, um, well, I mean, Docker's, kind of a, one of the, one of the Docker's not a, not an open, it's not really an open source They're, project. They, they are paid not, that's true. Docker hub is like paid for. and But nobody is paid to make sure that Docker hub works docker and docker hub work when vs code is opened on mojave 10 point well if they knew they would probably fix it i mean if if they had known then someone would go into the debug mode of of vs code and figure out what it's doing when the home folder is open on a mac and then maybe fix it but if you have it documented and you know you just close chrome and not open your home folder while you're booting docker like that's enough of a solution you just close vs code yeah i guess um, or at least close that folder. VS Code itself could be open. It's just that folder couldn't be open. It's the folder itself. So even if you... <coughs> I'm trying to think of what other... Because one of the things that comes up with VS Code specifically is that it's trying to talk to your Docker when you open it. It is, but I don't think that's it. I don't think that's actually what was causing it. I think, in my opinion, there's like... Well, I know for a fact that the Docker volumes are stored in the in the 
home folder somewhere. They're in like the application support slash right. Docker there's like a, like com a dot, doctor com docker dot docker yeah. dot volumes dot something. So I think what was happening was that for some reason VS Code was reading those Docker volumes and maybe somehow triggering some logic within VS Code that's supposed to talk to Docker, or it doesn't because I don't have any Docker plugins installed on VS Code. My VS Code had one package installed and it was the 1984 theme and that was it. So dude, there's no, do- I don't think there's any default Docker connectivity that's built into VS Code unless you install the Docker plugin. I'm trying to remember if it comes out of the box of the Docker stuff, but there is a Docker does. plugin there that is. allows you, that gives you a sidebar window of all your, Im- of all of all your, your images. images. You can turn them on and stuff. Yeah. yeah so but I, I don't, don't have that installed. That. So... That's very interesting. Did you try to open your user directory with like Smoltron and see what happened? <laughs> your, fa- your favorite code editor of all time? I don't have Smoltron. No. I, mean, I actually, this time, I didn't even install Sublime. But I'm actually thinking about uninstalling VS Code and installing Sublime because I really, really don't like how VS Code, even with the editor config plugin, freaking ignores the spaces or tabs. I can't get it to not do four spaces. It doesn't remember that it's two. It can, maintaining configs across different instances of VS Code is not have, a solved problem. I only have one. No, I'm and saying like having like the one true config that overrides everything. That is not a solved problem on VS Code. Well, You're 100 right about that. I personally run. Never had that problem times. with Sublime Text. That's true. Because it works with it works with other configs. And the thing is, I don't always have. I don't. So some would say, some people would say, "Well, Greg, why don't you just enable two spaces in the global config?" When I write PHP, it's four. When I write Python, yeah, it's two. That's true. When I write JavaScript, it's two. When I write Java, it's usually four. I think what has helped for me is that typically the projects I'm working on, the different projects will have their own, say, prettier or their own editor configs. Yeah, that well, live I with have the editor code configs itself. In, yeah, I have one and it ignores it and it does not enable two spaces. The thing is, I think that. This is a situation where VS Code tries to give you too much flexibility because if it has, if it detects that it has options for what kind of config should be the one true config for this workspace, uh, one, it'll try to figure it out and default to whatever its defaults are. But then its fallback after that is it's going to ask you to choose one per workspace. It doesn't and, ask But me. it doesn't, you have to go in there and ask it to well, ask you. You know what, it you know what works perfectly fine? It to help you. You know what figures out what, in, what to do? Every other... Every other editor. In, code editor. Except for Smoltron. Except for Smoltron. I don't think Smoltron Maybe works. Vim. Vim probably does it. Vim probably will <laughs> Vim realize. Vim's probably 100% okay. Yeah, so... Maybe even Emacs, who knows? I don't know. So it didn't work quite right and uh, it was annoying. So... I don't know. I I only use VS Code really as a temporary like quick swap editor anyways. Like if I'm writing like a little React app or like working on my portfolio or something, I'll probably open it in VS Code. Or if you're editing like your editor configs or your bash profile Yeah, I'll or use it in VS Code. Yeah. But the so thing is Sublime is faster and it, there's nothing anybody to, can argue about. I was about to say, if that's your use case for it, you should probably be using Sublime. Yeah, I probably should. But, you know, then I have to like download that and install my license which I paid for, unlike a lot of people in this world. Well, I have a license for Sublime Text. I, I also have a license. I haven't used it in a while, though, to be honest. The the one thing that is preventing me from going back to Sublime for a lot of reasons, um, one is the extension system. 
the way that VS Code does it, I feel like makes it much easier for discovery and management of extensions. Um, two is the thing that we've talked about is that the highlighting, the text highlighting theme that I use on VS Code does not exist. Sublime. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. That's, Which one do you use? I'm using Outrun. It's very purpley. That's the pinky, other laser you want. It's kind of it's a little bit darker. One. I'm using the there's two variations. There's Outrun Electric and Outrun Night. And I'm using Night. You know what really grinds my gears though? What really grinds your gears, Greg? There's no good like they added a theme system to IntelliJ. And there's no good themes? There's no good themes. Except for material theme, and I'm I don't know, I've gotten sick of it. So let me ask you this about IntelliJ. Do they distinguish between a syntax highlighting scheme and a overall editor theme? Yeah, there's uh, two, two different things. things. Two different things. Well, usually now with so basically the material theme was the first like UI takeover theme. Like somebody went in there, this guy, Chris RM, I think we talked about it in the past, and he basically like hacked at the the configs for IntelliJ and the jar file. I don't know what he did, but he basically made a plugin that completely changed the way that IntelliJ looked for the better. And he eventually turned it into um, both an editor theme and a syntax theme. So if you enable the theme of like the material theme, it's actually a plugin. You install the material theme. Right. And then you choose using his new menu option the editor theme. So you say material theme darker, material theme pale night, or all the options that material theme usually has. It'll change the frame of the app and also the color highlighting theme. But then what you can do immediately after changing the frame is you can go back in and change the, the syntax, syntax theme to be something uh, okay. different. So you can change those independently of each other. Yeah, but... Interesting. But with the new theme system, which isn't really a theme system, it kind of just installs jars that are essentially configs, that like plugin configs that change the theme they typically will come with something that matches. So the That's material the theme, the material theme looks really nice. If you enable material darker and you are okay with the way the colors are, it makes it so that the background of the editor and the whole entire frame of IntelliJ are the same color. Yes, I love that. That's what I want. Which is not the case with default WebStorm. Or right, because it's just whatever's in the window itself. Yeah, it's like with Darkula, the body looks different than the syntax theme. Yes. This is a thing in VS Code in that when it was first released, the only themes that they gave you an API for was the actual text and text highlighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember So the that. actual frame itself was like this weird was dark the, gray. The, the, it had the, the yeah. blue status bar at the bottom, which was kind of gross. And then as the releases went on, they gave you more and more access uh, to theme the entire thing. So you have some quote-unquote themes in the extension store uh, that are based on those older APIs where you only have access to what's inside the frame itself. But the newer themes, what people would consider a quote-unquote theme is the whole thing, all mm-hmm. of it, including the bottom bar, the top bar, all that, all kinds of stuff. And you have access to pretty much every single thing that has a color in the frame, uh, which is a simple JSON object. And you can have different definitions. You can have different extensions. You can customize individual extensions in your own settings. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you have, say, an extension that you like everything except the text just on this one part, like the highlighted open file or whatever, you can target that one color and change it in your settings. And so, and specifically just for that one theme. 
Mm-hmm. So if you have that theme open, it'll have your one change on there. Yeah. So that's pretty flexible. So that's very interesting to hear about. It makes sense. But the IntelliJ one, uh, the editor looks like so much better when it can be, when it is themed, which they realized because they did like a first class support for themes in some way. I don't is this know. a recent thing, the themes? It was part of 2019.0, oh. I believe, that they yeah. added themes. But they've always, so the the material theme was like someone went in and kind of created a plugin that changed all the colors. Like they did a bunch of work to make it work. Yeah, but they there wasn't <coughs> any official API from JetBrains that allowed you to do um, this. I think there was because that's what he used. But he did, there were certain things that he had to like change himself and like really get in there. So I don't know. I, I there was there was like a the ability to change things, but he went in and like changed all the icons. Like it looks so oh. much more modern. He changed like everything. Changed the fonts. Uh, I don't know about the fonts, but he changed like everything to be more modern and look cooler. Um, and then they launched their own theme support, but then they did a they did like a theme competition, and none of the themes, even the one that won, didn't really look that good. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, like I've been using 1984 on in VS Code, and I'm like, it doesn't annoy me. Like the thing, the thing that bugs me is like if colors don't, like if there's not like a certain set of contrast within like the different parts of the editor, it really drives me crazy. And the pro- one of the problems with IntelliJ is that it realizes and understands more of the language, maybe not necessarily than VS Code, but more than Sublime for sure, because VS yeah. Code has IntelliSense and it actually works, but of TypeScript and all that, it kind of understands the language. Whereas like Sublime Text didn't. So Sublime Text highlighted less things. Yes. But IntelliJ can highlight by def- by default, some of the themes highlight like everything a different color. So it's like this wall of color. It drives me insane. Yeah, it's like, it's almost uh, too much, too much differentiation. To it's work. too much it's differentiation. Like, uh, it's like yeah. a Where's Waldo. Yeah, because they'll be like, oh, if it's a local variable that's, o- variable that's overrided, it's a different color. Which that, might make sense. That is helpful, but unless you know that it's overwritten, that's not helpful at all. It's not helpful at all. <laughs> and sometimes the two colors are just slightly different. So you're uh, like, that's that's a good. different color, yeah. but it's not that much of a different color. Is so it just my monitor? It's yeah, kind of like, bright outside. What's going I, on what, down there? What, I've had two cups of coffee. Am I shaking? Like, I don't... Uh. Yeah, that's kind of annoying. Yes, that is kind of an art. There is an art to a good syntax highlighting thing. We've yeah. talked about that at length, but... I, yeah, I totally and I really you. wish that someone who understands that art, because I don't, would go in and make some IntelliJ themes. Like I had one that wasn't like amazing on my old work computer, but I had removed a lot of it. Like I had sat there for like a day. Oh, jeez. Like literally a day and removed some of the unnecessary like specific overrides. Like I had changed it so that like the overridden variable was the same color as the regular variable. And I kind of had neutralized it a lot and then left only the contrast that I wanted. And I used that theme for like six months and I never once looked at it and was like, hmm, I'm bored of this theme. But now I'm like using material theme and I'm like, change it. <laughs> Get it out of here. Get it out of here. I just don't like it. And I don't know what to do with my life. And now, and I'm also looking at my IntelliJ or my iTerm theme and I'm like, I had one an iTerm theme for my old computer that I that was neutral and it didn't didn't bother me. And then now my whole life is just ruined and I don't know what to do. Green green on black all day long. Hacksaw no. lead Hacksaw the Matrix. That's all no, you need. No, because there's other there's other That's iTerm themes that need. actually That's all <laughs> Especially if you use Zish, there's like other iTerm themes that actually 
have different colors that are not. I mean, Tmux has other themes as well. Though. I can never yeah. learn how to use Tmux. I think it's too complicated. Tmux, literally, the only thing I use it for is to split panes. Yeah, but even that is like super complicated. It's annoying. You know what else you can use to split panes? You can split panes with freaking iTerm without having Tmux. I wish the built-in terminal in Mac had split panes. I don't know why they wouldn't. Because there's so many instances where you're like, I have to look at this process over here and I have to look at this process over here at the same time and make sure they're both running. That's why I use iTerm. Uh, Just use iTerm. It's better anyway. Tmux is in the repo and it's cross-platform. Yeah, you well, you know what uh, you know what iTerm has by default. It has Tmux built in. Layers on layers, turtles on turtles. I mean, I don't know. Just it's there if you need it. Tmux is there. I it uses it, I think, internally in part of the, to do some of the things like split views. I don't know. That yeah. would make sense. It does stuff. Sense. It does stuff. It has Tmux. I'm pretty sure. I tried enabling it, and I could not figure out how to use it. I couldn't even figure out what the super key was. On my Mac. Like, I Googled it, and I could not figure it out. It never worked. Mine is still control. Not uh, command, control. I tried every single That's control button. control B. I tried every Pretty sure option. Control B. Yeah, I tried every option. Could never get it to work. Control but that's B. why that's why I started with a fresh Mac, because I didn't want to deal with the old computer. Control B, shift 5 is to split vertically. Control B, shift apostrophe is shift horizontally. And then control B up, down, left, right is to switch your panes. And then control B X is to close one. And then you have to confirm. That's literally all I use Tmux for. It's for the Windows. So I don't know. I don't use yeah. them. I don't use it. You should try it. Oh, I don't know. Backtracking a little bit. How many versions of Node do you have installed in your NVM? Um, right now I have two. But That's I it. used to have. Uh, I mean, I never uninstall them. So I probably have like, on my old computer, I probably have like five versions of eight, two versions of 10. I opened, I, I did NVM list literally today. I had 12 different versions of Node installed. I have no idea how that happened. I have no clue. None whatsoever. I think they were all different Mazer versions too. I think I had a four. I had a six. I think I had a couple of eights. And then I had like... Why would you have four? I don't, four was like right after IOJS stopped. No idea. No idea why I had four in there. But it was in there. But like you said, I don't think you ever actually delete them. So maybe I have to go in there and mix it up. But I had like four, a six, I had like two or three different eights. And then I had like nine, 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 ten, 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 ten. And then 11, 12, and 11 and 12, I think were the last two versions out there. It just like, I was expecting there to be, like you said, like four or five when I did NVM list. And it was in one of the half height Tmux windows. And it took up the whole window. I couldn't even see the whole list. I'm like, what is going on here? How is this possible? What happened? Yeah. Listeners, know. let us know if you if you run into this, if you're a <clears throat> node hoarder like I am. Apparently. I probably had a lot of versions on my old computer because... You just try things. No, but you were also it, using it for a long time. So you actually went through a bunch of different versions. Yeah, I would actually go through versions. but Because I usually don't go crazy with Node versions. I always use whatever the LTS version is when I start a project. Most recent working LTS version. Or, I mean, if I, if I have one on my computer, then I make that the version, whatever version of LTS I have. But I don't like, I don't really always use like 10 or 11 or whatever the newest one is until it's LTS. Do you set your versions in your repos? Like, do you have MVMRCs and everything? Yeah. 
like religiously? The ones that I do, yeah. Depends. I mean, I work on other stuff that sometimes doesn't have them, but when I make a project, I put them in there. <clears throat> um, I've heard this argument of like, why don't you use like the engine of the package JSON, which I ran into today because like the engine command of the package JSON will restrict the version of Node so that the engine has to exactly or semver major match whatever's in the package JSON. So it could be like 8.10 point anything. You know, you can do that kind of stuff just like you can with the package JSON versions for things. But it locks it so that like if you have Node 9, it won't even start. And you're like, that's annoying. It's like a pretty weird way to do it because you're assuming that your program can't even start without a new version of Node. Also, why won't you just tell me that's what it is? Well, it does. It says like, it'll say like, you you know, this thing is only compatible with Node 8.12. And you're like, okay, well, 8.14 is not 12. So therefore <laughs> it won't start, but you're like- But it should still work. It should technically work. Yeah. I think you can define a range, but some people use it kind of like an MVMRC where they'll define like a specific version all the way down to like the 0.1 or 0.10 or whatever. And you're like, okay, well- you know, 8.10.1 and 8.10.5 are roughly compatible with each other. They should both still work. But they don't. You can't even start it. You can't even NPM install. That oh, doesn't make any sense. Which sometimes I could, I'm I'm not stupid. I can understand some situations where it would be required that it has a specific engine. Um, because sometimes you could be using binaries or packages that require a version of Node. So sometimes like it would make sense to have like a lower bound. So if you said like, I think you can do like the less than or greater than oh, eight. carrot or whatever. Yeah, the, is it, I think it has the same semantics as the the node packages versions. So it's like greater than, less than, equal to, exactly, tildes, all those things. Latest. Stars, latest. Oof. That's um, a fun one. Yeah. Um, so you, like I think you can do that, but it, it was just like it was very rude. It was like you might you cannot start this, and you're like. I'm only on two versions later. Yeah. I'm on, maybe I'm on don't, LTS. Boron maybe don't. Did you just presume my version? Like what? Yeah. Like what's going on here? And like, you don't think it's going to work? Like it's just so finite. It's like, okay, well, if I have node 10, you're telling me that you're guaranteeing me based on your engine version that this app won't even start on a newer version of node. Like get out of here. You get don't it, know that. Get it out of here. You don't know that. And node in, in NPM itself are so wild west that you can't tell me there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. Yeah, there's like no the packages that, a, that are installed. There's no way that a dumb script knows. could figure that out yeah. in less time than like our human lizard brains yeah. can figure it out. And there's you know, no NPM is doing some interesting things with, and so is like GitHub, and they're doing some interesting things with security. The security team of Node is doing some cool stuff where they're figuring out um, whether or not packages that are in your project have vulnerabilities. So like in yes. for modern, modern versions of Node, if you like... NPM install will say that we found two vulnerabilities in these two packages. And you can this upgrade is them. severe. This is moderate. Yeah, this they'll is tell you low. all that as it's installing it, which if you pay attention to those things, it's good. That's very I good. I think there's even a command that's like NPM install, like is fail on security. Like I think there's oh, like stuff like, like, like that. Flag. Oh, I think there's I flags that. that'll even fail in CI if you have security issues with like interesting. But, you know, they're doing some cool stuff for security. But what would be really cool is if they would do something for um, node version compatibilities. So it would just say like... Oh, uh, like figure it out. Yeah, like Babel 7 isn't compatible with Node 6. Like maybe you should fix that. I feel like that person with map the computer. and that graph would be a lot less complex than people think it is. I think it's a lot less complex than security vulnerabilities. Yeah. 
I mean, well, maybe not. Maybe not because security vulnerability is just a list of security. It's yeah. like name of package, version flag, number, flag. What, what, how will this pwn you if you install it? Like, that's well, not really even how. It's just like this will pwn you a, if you install it. It's just a flag. It's like has a security vulnerability. Yeah, well, like that's it. And then maybe they do a cross reference against an API. I don't know, whatever. But yeah, there's that. But I don't know. That was kind of annoying. Um, but I only have the versions of Node that I need to install. I typically do uninstall them sometimes, I think. I also do that, like, there's the NPM reinstall packages. I do that often to, like, reinstall. What is that? I don't think... It'll reinstall all the packages from another version of Node. So, like, if you, if you like, install Node 10-something and you don't want to, like, reinstall Gatsby or Gulp CLI or whatever, you can say, like, NPM reinstall packages from a specific version and it'll reinstall any global oh, it, package. And it just up versions it for you? Yeah. Like it figures out what version it's an, of It's an own? NVM thing. It's not an NPM oh, thing. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's an NVM thing. Like NVM reinstall packages from version whatever and it'll reinstall all the global packages that were on that one because back in the day I used to have like 10 things installed like globally like Gulp CLI, like Gatsby, I don't know, whatever it was, a ton of things. And all then the I, generators and like Yeah, all the Yeoman generators and, and Yeoman when you used Bauer that was a thing and, and Bower when that was a thing and then you would have to um, you would have to migrate them over. Otherwise, you'd have to manually install those things. So, but this time when I installed the computer, I think the only thing that I installed was Gatsby. Was the only global package I installed. Oh, interesting. Because it's using it on my portfolio, so I needed it. But I didn't like install a bunch of stuff that was like legacy that I used to use. Like I think what? I also installed serverless because it's for the project too. Do you have anything specifically that you're like, I am leaving you behind? Gulp. Really? I didn't install it. I probably will. That eventually. actually makes perfect sense because even the programs that we used to use Gulp quite a bit for, I would call those legacy now. I would call a lot of the stuff that we were doing in Gulp now, one, Webpack's doing all of it. Um, and if it's CLI-based, there's probably a newer tool. There's probably a newer tool. Or you can just... Do NPM scripts. No, that's an argument I don't agree with. NPM scripts, uh, unless you're running like a shell script and then you're writing bash, you're not writing node. That's what, Well, that's what I mean, is that you can trigger it from an NPM script. You can, but... So you don't have to install a whole node dependency just to trigger bash scripts from inside your app. Yeah, but I've, I've, I've spent a lot of time uh, trying to do that, and it's not my favorite. It depends on what it is. I it mean, depends if you're literally just doing yarn test and... <laughs> Or whatever, and that's your test command. Like, okay, but the most complex one that I had to write was uh, I was building a Gatsby site, and we were wanting to serve it from GitHub Pages. And there's, if you're serving it in GitHub Pages from the actual repo, you have to tell it which directory to serve from, or from which branch. And which directory to serve from. And when you're checking in your built Gatsby site, you don't actually have it. You're not actually checking your built site. You're only checking in the written code. And then it compiles it? No, you have to, you have, to have a separate branch set aside specifically for including a built compiled version of the site and point the GitHub pages, quote unquote, server to that. So I, I wrote a script... What did I call it? Sounds like Deploy? some nonsense. No, it's it's actually uh, <laughs> there's a package you have to install called GH Pages, and what GH Pages is, it would generate a branch from within your site that would cut off of whatever branch you wanted to master, release, whatever. It would 
have a different git ignore that did not ignore the build directory or the public directory or whatever whatever your built site went to. And so what happened is, is that every time you checked in and you run, you have to run a script to, to run this ghpages command, it would also check in something to that ghpages branch with the built compiled site in the directory that was accessible. And so then you would go to your repo and you would say, hey, serve my GitHub pages from ghpages branch from this directory that did not exist in master. So in that, that case, kind you of keep, defies the purpose of. Well, you're keeping your master clean. Well, you're you're making a branch that's completely different and it's like a forked subset. It can of, only <laughs> come off of a specific branch that's built into the package. I know it's convoluted. I know it doesn't I it know. doesn't make any sense based on the way that Git is supposed to work. They're all supposed to be equal to each you're other, and they're to... all supposed to go back into master. That's the whole point of Git. But you don't check in your built site into master. That's the thing. So if you're trying to serve it, see, like the idea behind the the idea that you're serving your actual site from GitHub is it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. So that's why this workaround exists. Anyway, that's why I wrote mm. an NPM script mm. to run a bunch of bash and CLI commands. And I am not this. impressed. Sometimes you got to do things. <laughs> the most complicated thing I did with, uh, with NPM scripts was there's, there's, some, there's like a library that does concurrency that allows you to run like multiple things at the same time. Is like, it called Go? No, no, it's like it's it's like is NPM, it called concurrent? Is I think it it's called concurrent npm concurrent or something. I don't know, but it allows the npm scripts to like run two things in parallel. So you can like instead of saying and and, which would be like right after, like in bash terms, it like runs a program that essentially uh, runs the like breaks into two. I think it uses tmux or something in the background, but it breaks into two forks and then runs both of them like two different threads. Yeah, and then it remembers when one finishes. Or oh. there's like a there's a thing where you when you cancel something, it will run like a post complete cleanup, and you can oh. have it like run another command when like when you control C, npm run dev or something, it would like delete the cache folder or something. Isn't that like is there a thing with prettier that does that too, like a post commit hook? Well, there's those, but that's actually a feature of Git. This is like. The, the post commit hooks is like a, a feature, like a git. It's like but a you can access that git via the, the actual scripts themselves. And you, I guess you could do it. Well, you make a command. Else, well, you maybe? make a you make an, an npm command that runs something, and then you make your post commit um, hook run that command. It's literally just running a shell script. That's yeah, all it's doing. So then in the shell script that's running is npm run cleanup. Yeah. So it's like a bastardization of the way that it works. But my whole point though is that. Using npm scripts to do that kind of stuff leads to like this weird situation where you're installing these weird packages. You really, if you think about it, all you're doing is screwing with bash. They are a little bit hacky, yes. You're just screwing with bash is all you're doing. And that's all npm scripts do is they run a single shell script, which is why I don't really like them that much for doing anything complicated, which is often why like they're mostly used to alias against one command. Yes, they should not be that complex. So, and I don't know, I still haven't like really found... Uh, like a, my groove in terms of like when I'm writing utilities like that, I don't really, I don't always like to, I, I don't really write utilities in Node, like command line utilities. It depends on what it is. It's very, it's very dependent on the project itself. I've uh, done it. I mean, I've written like for one particular project, I've wrote like an entire set of Node, um, like scripts that could run. And they were all triggered by shell scripts that were then triggered by npm run commands. Yeah. 
<laughs> but you, you can get pretty complex with them. I agree with you though. They should not be that complex. They should actually be super simple as kind of easy to read as possible. But the, the good thing about NPM scripts is that they are documented within the code base. Right. And so are shell scripts. <laughs> well, They're just, all they sort are is an of. alias to one command. They're just an alias to one command. So sort of. if you're like, okay, npm run test literally just runs jest. If you so have like, a, why the heck do you have npm run test? If you have a, if you have you a, a de- uh, bash script that has multiple functions in it, it doesn't matter. Like an npm script at the very least, and I'm not saying you should always use this for this, but what it has going for it is that it's literally telling you this is a command line program that it runs. You don't necessarily need to understand the whole thing. You could have like curl in there. You could have a regex in there if you wanted to. It may not necessarily be the most readable thing. You might not know what that random flag dash dash FXV tarball Z something in there. Like you might not actually know what that does. But the idea is that if somebody's written an NPM alias for it, maybe it's a little bit more readable. Maybe it's called something like npm run deploy, npm run test. And you're like, oh, that means it's going to run the test. You know what my hot take is? I don't ever do that unless it's like, the only thing I use npm scripts for is npm start, run start, yarn start, which is dev mode usually for me, or npm run dev if you really want to. But start is the same. Well, start is traditionally used for like starting it on a server, but who really runs Node directly in a server like that? Like who's turning on a server and then having it run npm run start? I mean, you're probably not. What you're doing these days is you're wrapping whatever you're writing inside of Docker and then you're running Docker on the server, which even running Docker directly on a server is painful sometimes. Not painful in terms of like getting it to run, but like usually you want to use something like Swarm or something to orchestrate, not just running Docker, like Compose even. But even running Compose on a server is sometimes painful. Um, not They've made it better. Like it auto starts with the system now and... Um, there's the all restart always so that it always turns back on whenever you reboot the computer. So it makes it a lot easier. Like Docker's done some work to make it so you can run it raw directly on a server. But, you know, you're, it's not like gone are the days where like you're running Nodemon or like, I mean, I'm not saying nobody does, don't at me, but like you're probably not making a new app and running Nodemon directly on Metal. Like running Node no. directly on Metal no. anymore. No, you're probably not. You're running it inside of Docker or you're running it on some orchestration thing or something. Um you're not like, you know, running PM2 with like seven pro- named processes <laughs> on your on your server anymore. PM2. People do. That's People a name do. I haven't heard in years. Well, PM2 is actually really good, but um, it's like Nodemon, but on crack. But oh, basically geez. like, yeah, people don't, don't add me. Like I know people, that's how people run their stuff and it's perfectly acceptable. But, you know, if you're building something new, you're probably going to run it in Docker and you're probably going to run it somewhere else. And the cubes, maybe, and it's a really big investment, but sure, you probably would run it on Kubernetes or you'd run it on, you know, Amazon EC, uh, ECS or EKS, which is their key, Kubernetes service or something. Or you're running it directly on EC2 on Docker potentially, but that's really all that e- ECS does is it just runs it on a dedicated Docker instance instance type. I don't know. Too many things. It's a lot but, of things. Setting up a new computer which takes us back to what we were saying. Oh, man, that's where we started? Wow. <laughs> Setting Ooh. up a new computer is hard. I didn't find it, it to be that hard, hard actually. Well, uh, it might not be hard, but... The only thing I'm mad is I lost all my color schemes. That's that's part of what I'm saying. It's hard. Well, if I had a backup, uh, I do have, actually... I probably can find it. I'm pretty sure 
I have that theme backed up on hard drive. I might even try to do that in the next couple of days. Would cause... it actually work in the newest version of IntelliJ? Yeah. Is that IntelliJ always, it always upgrades, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, the thing is I downloaded off of Backblaze my entire IntelliJ application preferences as said like support folder. But all it did is install a bunch of all the old packages that I had on my IntelliJ config. But I didn't get my key bindings and I didn't get my color themes. I think they're Aren't stored somewhere those else. Those actual files that you have to upload yourself? No, they're stored in a folder somewhere. Mm. But I it's not I don't think it's the same folder. That's weird. It's not. I mean, the application support stuff is like all the packages, all the plugins you have installed are like right. a bunch of jars there. And I think it's like in some other configuration folder somewhere. I don't know. I remember I remember one time I found there's an actual raw file that is your color theme. I need to go find that. Yes. But you have to like slip that back into the config because you can't just like, it's not like a jar. It's like some the text file. file, right? Like a, like it's a like JSON a maybe? It's, it's not, it's never that simple. No, XML? It's, <laughs> it's probably an XML file. Oh no. Yeah, well, I mean, we're no. talking about Java here. Java does not natively really understand JSON. No, it doesn't. It's an XML no, based. It's always XML. As yeah, a person who is working on some Java apps now, I've seen a lot of XML these days and uh, it's a little jarring. It's you know, a little, some might argue uh, that XML is more verbose than JSON. It is. So. It is, but there's always a balance between verbosity and... There's readability. literally... No, there's, there's actual things that you can define in XML that you cannot define in JSON That's without true. losing specificity or... Creating more nested keys. That's true. It is extremely hard to read, though. Well, some some would say that, you know, a 1,000 line JSON file is hard to read, too. XML, you have you have nodes which have their own properties. I mean, it's HTML. They have nodes of their own right. properties. HTML is also hard to read sometimes. But the, it, way like, that, you, the way that tags are lined up and everything, it's it's a syntactic thing. It's, it's not more, really, it's, more it's such writing. bug shedding, but it's just. And then the other thing they try, you know, they try to say that like YAML is supposed to be like more like XML, but more like JSON. It's like both. You know what YAML reminds me of? <laughs> I don't know. I'm starting to not like YAML. I'm also starting to not like YAML. It reminds, Actually, me, of coffee, it it reminds me of CoffeeScript. Mm, it looks it just like CoffeeScript. Yeah, there's a lot of Don't like weird syntax like me. the <laughs> It looks just like it. And there's, it's starting to annoy me in the same way that CoffeeScript is. There's a lot of like weird things like you can you can use like and slash tilde and so, I don't know. There's like all these weird things that you can use to extend YAMLs if yeah. you really look at the spec. Uh it, it's an interesting domain specific language for sure. Yes. It's it's useful and I feel like it's pretty good for its intended purpose, but I think that we are both at a point in our careers where we have like, for some reason, an aesthetic taste of how we like our programming languages to look. And XML and YAML and CoffeeScript are things that fall on the wrong side of that taste. Yes, that's bike shedding. I totally understand. That's totally what it is. I don't care. I don't like how they look. <laughs> I actually don't hate XML because uh, I use it a lot with Java. But one thing I will say is I have had way, 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 way more times that the syntax of XML has gotten broken. And then I have spent time with a capital T-I-M-E debugging simple things in XML. Oh, yes. And you run it through a linter and it still doesn't understand what's going on. Can't figure it. it out. No, it knows there's an error, but it puts it on the last line. Oh, 
on the very bottom bracket. It's like, oh, you're missing a bracket. You're like, thank you. It's like, there's 5,000 nested brackets above this. And you're telling me it's on the last line of the file? It's GTFO. Like, <laughs> dependency versus dependencies. Really? I'm supposed to see that? Yeah. I'm supposed to just Dude, look at that and know that? Don't really? ever don't ever work in Maven then because oh, you will not like it. Anyway. I, I work in Maven as much as I have to these days. Let's put it that way. I actually have done some pretty trick stuff in Maven, but... I'm telling you, man, anything that you do with XML, you spend more, unless you like are looking at it every day. So like the Java people are probably laughing at us like you noobs. Like, yeah, yeah, if you look at XML every day, you understand it. But if you come from like a JavaScript background and you write a lot of JSON configs, you go to look at XML and you're like, what is going on? Yeah. And like, why is it so much writing? Um, Dependency is such a long word. Why is it in this file so many times? Well, I would tell so you, I would tell you, but, um, I don't want to explain Maven for five years, but oh my God, that's how long it would take to explain it though. Well, right? Basically Maven is a, one of the things that's interesting about XML and you notice this on Maven, you notice it on like AM and you also notice it on, um, Magento. It's very good at selectively targeting specific aspects of a config using, um, what is the what is the damn syntax? Uh, it's going too far back in my memory, but there's a there's a specific way that you can. It's kind of like the reverse of um, um, I can't remember the name of that thing. What's the thing where like where if you're in Sublime and you type like um, br star three and it expands it? What's that thing called? Emmet. Yeah, it's like Emmet, right? Because what Emmet is doing is it's it's building the JSON, right? The XML. There's a way that you can actually target and parse and segment XML to then like target a very specific part of it and overwrite it, which is why- Programmatically? Yeah, which oh. is why things like Java beans work really well because you can specifically target very specific nodes by property. You can't do that with JSON. JSON, you're always, you know how like whenever you're dealing with like JSON data, you're always like- You have to traverse the whole thing where, to figure out where everything is. You did a lot is. of yes. crap in Lodash yes. where you're like, find where the one that has this. Yes. You don't have that problem with XML because you're literally like, find me the, you know, the the node.dependency dot where the attribute is and then you can use like the, there's a word for it, but you can use- It's this, like dot notation kind of. Well, it's the selector queries that are built into uh, to CSS and XML, like all of that crap. It's like, find me the fifth div with the nth child that has this where the property um, is cats. And then it'll find it and then you can overwrite it and change it and merge it with something different. So XML is very good at replacing specific nodes within a nested tree structure. Whereas with JavaScript, with the JSON, you have to nope, you you have to say like, go through the whole thing. find the code dot dependencies, find where the one equals JavaScript. Bracket zero. It. Bracket zero, replace with blah. Dot cats. Yeah, and then you got to like error check to make sure that it, that actually that that actually is a key of the thing that there is one of those that it's not undefined is not a function. You know, filter, and then you end up with an empty array. You got to check the length. You know, you got to do all these things. Yeah, do all these things. But you don't have to do that with XML because XML can be queried because it is a query language. <laughs> like it is designed to be queried. So XML, what, what you're telling me, what we've determined between is XML what is actually said, useful. What I've said about XML, what you've said about XML is that XML is a language for robots. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'm not even saying that in a pejorative way. No, yeah. It, it seems like that. Computers are very good at reading XML, yes. which is why it is the basis for what Java uses to do a lot of configuration. To do all the things. Yeah, all the things. Greg, do you have a pick for us this week? 
Totally. Um, so I was talking to a friend uh, who you know, I'll name off show, but he uh, he was talking about this thing called, I think it's called FYF. Google it. It's a... Uh, That's a music festival in Los not Angeles. The, not the music <laughs> festival. It's like, Google, Google it. Google, you computer Google. I don't have a computer. Um, it's like FYF, um, but basically it's a replacement for Control R in Terminal. What? Yeah, so instead of it doing... Like control R just finding one thing. No, it's it's probably not FYF. It's probably like maybe I'll get no, what? FYF is definitely not oh, it. Oh, what is it? I could pull my laptop out. Oh my god. Even when you have picks, you're not good at picks. <laughs> That's why I don't like doing picks. You know, it's like Z it's not Z Y F. It's uh it's one of those weird things. Anyway, it doesn't matter what we'll have it in the show notes. So um, it's one of these things. It's like a, it's like an, it's a, it's a terminal thing that essentially does like fuzzy finding. That's why I think it's FYF. It's fuzzy something. FZF, F something, F. McFly? No, search for terminal fuzzy search. Control R. FZF. There you go. FZF. Google's so smart, man. Jesus. Google is amazing because it knows, earth. it heard me say, Replacement for control R. It was like, that's oh, that. FZF, command line fuzzy finder. Yes. FZF is a general purpose command line fuzzy finder. It's an interactive Unix filter for command line that can be used with any list. Files, command history, processes, host names, bookmarks, git commits, etc. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Only thing I know how to do is essentially the replacement for command R right now, but it does other things. Like you can run arguments to, you can pass things to it and it kind of filters them. And then it allows you to like go up and down between them. Cause you know how like in Zish, when you like do control R, you can go up and down between the things that you previously typed Yes. with this thing. And then you can type things and it'll start to narrow it down based on your history, right? Yes. That will do that, but it will do it against any list. You can pipe like anything to it. Any list. And then you can start type Like if you're, if it's like a list of a thousand IP addresses and you're like, I know it's 192.168.1. It'll narrow it down and you'll see them all. You combo this with something like Nmap or some other fuzzing tools where you have to enumerate. Yeah, and your life has changed. Game so over. you can thank Game over. Mr. B. That'll be his name. Yes, I talked to him the other day too. He actually gave me something, but we're going to talk about that later. Um, During your show. pick time? Yeah. So anyways, that was uh, that was the thing that I was thinking about for a pick, but then you, you know, for once, were like, let's not do picks, and then for once, I had one, and that's very weird. That's amazing. And then I didn't remember the name that of it, amazing. so that's where we are now. So this has a commit from three hours ago, so it's up to date. This is pretty cool. That might be too up to date. Do you know if it works? It's in master. <laughs> it's in master. It better. Do you know? Did they have a develop branch? Does it work? Oh, geez. Let's see. Let's see if they're keeping... Oh, he has a Devel branch. Ooh, that guy wants to save some characters. It's not a dev. It's not develop. It's Devel. He's splitting the difference. He doesn't want yeah. to type it out, man. He's yeah. a man of he's well, a man of few words. That's one of those things where it doesn't really matter. Do you? He wants to as save as his works, time. You know that's why he created FYF. <laughs> FCF. <laughs> anyways. Anyways, amazing, great pick. I love it. That's all I got. I've that just got changed your a, life. Uh, I've got a Visual Studio Code extension. Nobody likes Visual Studio Code. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go I on. guess not. I guess not. It's only like one of the most starred projects on GitHub. Oh, wait. Is that because it's owned by the same company? I don't. Conspiracy. 
Anyway, you visual, said it. Visual Studio Code. When I have Visual Studio Code, I'm running it. I am running several instances of it at the same time. Sometimes I'm even running Insiders and the Stable Build at the same time. I need a way to it's keep like track. Canary and running Chrome. I know, it kind of is. But you know how you can tell the difference between Chrome and Chrome Canary? The icon. The icon is different, right? Yeah. The extension I have today is called Peacock. Are you peacocking, bro? <laughs> That's the thing. I, I saw it on a, I saw it on a so TV show. So what Peacock does is that Peacock allows you to change the color of either the top bar, the side explore bar, or the bottom status bar of any given window instance of Visual Studio Code to different colors. Sounds like a lot of customization time. Well, it allows you to pick and... It has an option in there that makes it super helpful. So it says, surprise me with a random color. So oh, I every time it that, opens, it's like a rainbow mode. It's like a rainbow mode. So you can tell mm. instantly that you're on a different window of instance of VS Code just by looking at it. If you remember the colors. But you don't necessarily... So the thing that I found super helpful about this is not that you're like mapping a specific color to a repo in your brain. You're not like, oh, this is the so-and-so directory and this is the so-and-so directory. It's just that... Um, when you're switching back and forth between, you were like, windows, I was just on green, and now I'm I was blue. just on green, and now this one's blue. Why am I on blue? I need to go back to green, so I just go back to green. Mm. And it's brilliant, and it's configurable to where you can do just the top bar where the name of the repo is, you can do just the top bar and the sidebar where the icons are, just the top bar and the sidebar and the status bar at the bottom, the beautiful blue one that you love so much. You can make all three of those the same color. You can make two of the three the same color. You can make one of the three, the same color. You can make all three different colors. Pretty amazing stuff. You can save colors. You can say, I want it to be my third favorite color. Change it to this. That's a lot of work. It's, uh, it's a, well, it, all the options are within the command palette. So you don't yeah, have to I actually don't... type anything. So mm. it's really nice. Here's the kicker. Guess who runs it and maintains it? Our good friend, John Papa. Who? The guy who wrote the Airbnb style guide. Oh. Probably because he's got so many windows of the Airbnb. He's got style guide so open. many windows open. He's got the, the style guy is probably like, if you have a new file, you have to open a new window. Maybe Keep every, all, separate your concerns out. No, he's probably got he's probably got like ninety projects open that he's, he's upgrading the version of Airbnb style guide to. Every single if you have a new branch open, you have to open a new window. And that's no, where he's probably from. got he's probably like constantly upgrading all the projects he's ever worked on to like the new version of the Airbnb style guide because he's like unhappy. With the fact that one of them is on like an old version and he's changed his mind about something. All commas, end of line, all, all end of lines. Well, they're, you know, <laughs> I don't know. They're always changing stuff. That thing has so many rules. It has a lot of rules. It has rules about how to name things, which that's when you know a style guy has gone, gone over the line. It's like naming things is hard even when there aren't rules. If you add rules to it, it just makes it harder or it makes it less verbose. You're not going to win by trying to legislate good naming practices. Greg can be found on the internet at Gregorski. I am at Al Park. The show is at a public function. We post new episodes of this glorious show on Tuesdays very early in the morning Pacific Standard Time. This is episode number 29. It's the 30th episode. We can be found on the internet, publicfunction.show backslash zero two nine. All the show notes, all the tags, all the links, all the things that we talk about will be linked there. You can also contact us, publicfunction.show backslash contact. 
can email us hello at publicfunction.show. I read every single email that comes through there. I even go into the spam folder sometimes just to see, just in case we missed one. Send us nice things. Tell us what Greg is doing wrong with his new computer. Uh, you know, tell us if you like the picks. I've reduced my computer to where it doesn't even have an editor anymore. If you would like us to continue picks, I just let talked, us know. I just talked to Let Siri. us know there. You can also, you can also tweet at us uh, at a public function on Twitter. Uh, I run that account personally. I will respond to you. Hey, Siri. I respond to everyone. I've responded to everyone that's, that's, that's tweeted at the, at the show so far. Uh, we are on Discord. We have a link to that in the show notes. We are having a good time there. People are asking us lots of questions and things. Greg is on there as well. Hey, Siri. With him. Hey, Siri. Yes. Let X equal 12. Let Y equal 7. I feel like Siri could even figure that out. <laughs> hey, Siri. Const result equals X plus. Greg, do you have anything y. else for us? No, not really. No. All right. See you next week. See you next week. <laughs> You know what I've decided about your keyboard tester here? The the key switch tester? Yeah, what about the key switch tester? So there's these Alias keys on the side that I like. Alias 60G, 70G, 80G, and 100G. Yes. I've decided that I want a 90G. They don't have one. You wouldn't be able to feel the difference. I do. So I feel I, the difference so between 80 and 100. Between 80 and 100, right. But between 80 and 70. Why do 70, they have 60, 70, 80? Because people think that they... People think that there's a difference because the thing is that it's. Uh, I feel the difference between I feel the difference between the sixty and the hundred, right? But you, and the you 60. don't you don't feel the difference between sixty, the 70, 70 and, and the sixty. I do. But the thing is, ten grams between six. The difference between sixty and seventy numerically is not the same as the difference between eighty and ninety would be theoretically, right? If you think about percentages, because remember these are activation weights, right? So I don't know. From I feel 60 like to I like seventy is one sixth. Whereas eighty to ninety is one eighth. It's a much smaller distance. So once you get up to uh, once you get up to eighty, you have to go from eighty to a hundred in order for that jump in, in difference to be the same as the jump in difference from sixty to seventy. It, it's uh, logarithmic. So the curve, the force curve, the difference. You're telling the force me there's a logarithmic involved with there this. There is thing? math, man. Everything is math. I want you to prove that. Everything is C, man. I want, you to, write a, I want you to write a paper. Should I write a C program to, to prove it to you? I would actually really, I think that uh, a board of the 100 gram Alias switches would be a, the perfect work keyboard for me because I've always liked a heavier switch and a tactile switch. But for the office, you need something that's that's a silent switch like that. So it has it has the bump. I like that they have the options, but I feel like if I had, if I had ordered one, I probably would have chose the 60. Maybe the 70. I would have broke the difference to the 70. So I have this board right here. Yeah, what is that one? So this is a, a cheap kind of... What are the, what are the, what is the so number? This is the 80s. This is the Alias 80 gram switches in this board. And the thing is about these switches is that you can test them in a, in a key switch tester all you want and kind of get a feel for it, but you're not actually going to know how they feel until you actually put them in a keyboard. The good thing about this keyboard is that the sockets are hot swap. And so you can buy whatever switches you want and put them in there and load them up. And how do you take them out? Pumps your uncle. There's a. It comes with a little puller, so you have to take the keycaps off first, which we know how to do that. 
And then there's a separate puller that has these little hooks in it that hook into the top and bottom of the switch and you just yank them out. Huh. You should change your backspace key to be 100G. I would just want, I, I don't think I would want different weights for different keys. Oh, you should. I don't think I would. I don't think I would like that. I've seen people on Reddit do that where they're like, I want my, they've gone to the point where it's like, I want my home row to be super stiff and then subsequent rows away from the home row to be less and less stiff. Right. So the, the QWERTY row, which is directly above the home row is like, basically your home row is like the hundred, hundred gram. And then your QWERTY row is like 80 grams. And then your number row is like 70 grams, which that's just, that's, that's too much. That's just too many configuration options at that point. What so if you went much. this way and you were like the A key is 100 and the G key is 60? I guess you could do that too because this theory, is 100 and this is 60. I would just say, you know what? Practice typing with your pinkies. Yeah. You need, your pinkies need less weight for I sure. I think it's just, it's too much cognitive load to try to think about the different weights per finger, especially with stuff like typing because your each finger on your hand when you're typing is doing multiple things is responsible for multiple things they also so like, each finger isn't as strong as the other fingers that's true but again practice typing it's not that hard the court the entire qwerty layout is laid out in a specific way in that most used keys are in certain places now it's arguable whether or not that's the most efficient layout but that's one of the reasons why the the, the letters are laid out the way that they are hmm so Right, your modifiers are in the lower corner so that you can use your index and your your middle fingers, your strongest fingers, to add your additional modifiers with that. There's a purpose to it, and so none of this makes sense because I don't know how to type. Well, one of these days, man. No, I have a Mac Pro, MacBook Pro keyboard. I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> I don't have to type. I just like peck the keys and hope they it'll, work. <laughs> it'll 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 either double type everything that you type or not type. So it averages out to typing correctly. Yeah. <laughs> I just pack the keys and they yeah. Yeah. You hit them on the corner and it doesn't type. This is this is the problem with keyboards is that it is an endless rabbit hole. Yeah, I don't really know how much I like my um, my race because it, the keys are too, they're quiet enough, but they're very like. It's the silent reds, man. I'm telling you, it's the, the reds are just. Very, I like the reds. I have, actually, I have the clears on, your on my board. home. I love my home keyboard. It's just. My ducky is amazing. Or you can, my other keyboard in there, my other keyboard, my other keyboard in my, in my office is the glorious GMMK 10 keyless. And that is hot swap. You have another keyboard in there? How many keyboards do you have? He's going to go grab it. It's in a box. He says, open the, what's in the box? Oh God, what is this sound? So again, this is the glorious GMMK modular mechanical keyboard, TKL RGB barebone edition. This is a 10 keyless size board. It is a hot swap board, which means that each of the sockets, you can put in whatever key switch you want and you have to add your keycaps on top of that. So right now I'm running it with the KL Box Navy switch, which is the clickiest, clackiest, heaviest, tactile, clicky switch that you can probably get on the market anywhere right now. Maybe. I don't know. There's some customs you could do, but it's one of the clickiest switches that you can get. So if you're a person who likes the cherry blue type of switch that kind of makes noise when you click on it, 
you could probably hear it through through Greg's mic right now. Well, I'm sure you can hear this right now. Louder than let me you can see. Hear no, me. I'm trying to see if it's actually going to come through the noise gate or not. Oh, it's I can hear it in my headphones. I mean, yeah, yeah, you'll you'll probably be able to get some of it. Um, but notice how like heavy that switch is. I cannot handle. Well, it. just like type on it with your fingers. Like, feel how heavy that is. Yeah, it's really annoying. I have to like push very hard. Well, I love that because I, for some reason, know how to type. I don't know. It's a thing. Well, don't do, like it, don't, don't do it like that. You can't that, break it. No, no. The sound will come through the... Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyway, that's my main home keyboard. And okay. I agree with you. On my home keyboard, I use a 10 keyless layout, which is a little bit bigger. I like it. I don't like the compact one. Um, my office board is... Uh, what is this one? So that one is just one. This is an experiment. That's what that is. So uh, see how huh? see how small it is. Yeah. See how see how it doesn't have the arrows on the ends like that, but it's kind of mashed in in the same edge over here. So this has uh, kind of a weird layout. It's a sixty percent quote unquote sixty percent layout where it's designed to basically take a ten keyless, cut off the function row, and then cut off the side over here. I'm I'm doing a hand motion uh -huh. like you can yeah. see. Typical sixty percent boards are literally just this much right here, and they don't have any error key clusters over here. They basically use a keyboard shortcut to try to use your arrows and all your other keys. This one is what's called a 64 key layout, which is the same physical size as 60%, but it's trying to fit these arrow keys, physical arrow keys, into the same space. So what you'll see over here is that it does have the arrow keys on the lower right-hand corner, but the way that it gets to you and the way that it accomplishes this, this is such dorky keyboard stuff, is that it actually has to shorten the left side space key. There's no way that you will ever be able to look at pictures and notice this, but the shift key, the left shift key on its standard, bog standard layout is measured in individual units, like one U, two U, things like that. This where one two, U being this is two units, right? On a on a typical one over here, this left shift key is two and a quarter units. Oh, they lost that quarter. They lost that quarter. So what that, that means quarter was is the that, most important quarter. Well, what that means is that on that same row where the shift keys are, that row, they can now fit three one U keys on the right hand side where the right shift would be. Mm hmm. What is this key? That's just supposed to be some random key. You're supposed to be able to configure it. Oh, but you you didn't have the key, so you did whatever you I mean, want. You just put whatever keys you want there. No, See, but you you have a backspace. I could put a different keycap on there. No, Doesn't I know, matter. but it's not actually a backspace. It's not. It, it can be whatever uh, okay. you want. I think it comes pre-mapped with delete. That's why I put that on there. Anyway. Oh, the forward delete. I think so. I don't, I don't actually know. I was going to change it to a function, but mm -hmm. I was going to see if I could do think. this. It's a little weird just because the right shift, which is a key that you use a lot more than you think you do, is only one unit wide, whereas it normally out three units wide. So it's, it takes a little bit of getting used to because it's further left as well. Because remember, we're a quarter key to the left here. That's right where the question weird. mark is. It's right around the question mark is. It, Take some getting used to. It's kind of weird. The biggest problem and the reason why I probably won't be continuing with this experiment is that the key directly to the right of the space bar on this keyboard is mapped to function, which is supposed to give you access to all the secondary keys or whatever. Mm -hmm. For my purposes as a work keyboard using it primarily on Mac OS, I was going to remap that key to right control or excuse me, right command because that's where it is on the Mac keyboard. That's what we do. And that one weird one off to the side next to the arrow key, I was going to remap that to function, just use that and have it be out of the way. Lo and behold, I go into the key software 
And I find out that you cannot map the function key to anything else other than function. Womp. Womp. So. So return. Mm, maybe. Maybe. The thing is, it actually works okay at home because remember on our PC systems, we're control centric, not command centric. So that keyboard still has a control where it would be on a, on a normal keyboard. So all of my keyboard shortcuts on, say, Linux or Windows are still control-centric around that. So I can still use that at home. I don't like it as much as, as my 10 keyless. So I don't use it as much as this. But it is kind of a nice little test bed, try things out, see how things work, see if you like that layout. I don't know, that kind of thing. I, it was pretty cheap. It was like a $60 board off of... Um, I think Banggood took two weeks to get here. I they think it was okay. I think it do. was okay for an experiment, for a complete experimental trying thing. I've typed on it. I'm not that much slower on it in typing tests I've done than my 10 keyless. It's roughly, roughly about the same. I prefer the 10 keyless with the nice blue clicky clacky switches. Just that tactility of the feel of how it feels and the loudness of the click. Just, just does it for me. So uh, I've been switching back and forth between those two. Um, I do like the form factor a lot in terms of not having the function keys on the top. I think I can live with that. I thought I couldn't, but I feel like I can. The next layout that I want to try based on what I found between these experiments is that there's another layout called the 65%. Is that the ducky one? Uh, no. So it's essentially like the 60%, but it has a whole nother vertical row We'll call it a column. Column of one U keys on the right-hand side. So what that does, it allows you to go back to the regular size left shift, bring everything over, have a two U right shift. Isn't that what the vortex is? No, the vortex. So it's essentially like your vortex, but without the function row. Hmm. It's a little bit smaller. The um, top of the vortex doesn't bother me. It's actually the right row. That, that far thing on the right you're talking about, I can never get used to where the keys are. Oh, that's what annoys me because like delete is in a weird place and like see I don't care about the so the thing no, but is the keys that are on the right are like in different places than you would ever imagine them to be. I think I would remap those. It's like I think these guys. Typically... It's like insert and home are on the far right yeah, side. Yeah, I think I would remap them to different. I would probably remap them to like volume on off, like the mute switch, play pause, and then you're gonna be like like I accidentally hit home all the time on the far right because it's like hanging off the edge of the keyboard. Yeah, but you're not gonna check that in. <laughs> If you make it into a key that doesn't actually... I, I agree with you. Having the Don't nav keys the over there, well, then you know you hit the wrong key. I just think that hitting that right shift, having that be a bigger size is important enough to put up with that. Row. I don't know. I, I, I haven't found like an economical way Funny, of... The, the 10 keyless is the best option. <sighs> I've done know. it. I've I, done like, I really, really like the smaller form factors. I really do. The one I have at the office right now is kind of in between... Is 10 kilos and that's 60%. It's kind of there, but the the ones that I'm talking about is gonna be even a little bit like one row, one column narrower. And I think that are you trying to get down to the the fundamental epitome of what a keyboard is? <laughs> is that what you're trying to do here? I'm trying to get to the beautiful object. Are you trying to remove all the parts of the keyboard that you don't need till you get to the final sum summation of what a keyboard should be? And then we reduce that into a smaller, I mean, smaller piece. I mean, you could. I've seen what are called 40% boards that are literally just the letters. So my keyboard 
it's missing the keyword she wrote because I felt that I didn't really need it and it wasn't fundamental to what I was doing. It was too ubiquitous to the typing experience and I discovered that we, once we let go of the things that we think we need, then only there can we try and... Once we had the courage, the courage to remove the Q key, we found... <laughs> I broke Albert. Oh my God. Once we removed the Q key, we found that we had the courage to add nothing. And once we had nothing, we found everything. We should make a site called Real Johnny or Not <laughs> and just put stuff. We, we should Oh, we could build a bot that just builds random quotes mm, like that. Yeah. We, could, we could train it with his actual quotes, like the nonsense about the beautiful object or whatever. Yeah. It would generate fake quotes and we'd have to quiz people and it'd be impossible. It would be impossible to get any of those right. Yeah. 